thank you. Turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation. This is probably the part of the book you've been waiting for since we began back in early September. This is the part that tends to get a lot of press and a lot of interest. Um, I don't think it's one of the more important one of the more important parts of the book. Uh, again, I referenced the last two weeks when we talked about Revelation 4 and 5 and the throne room vision of heaven and who's on the throne is God and the Lamb. Uh, you need to keep that central. Uh, you're, you're going to see the Lamb bringing judgment on planet Earth uh, th- from here through chapter 19 into part of chapter 20. Uh, one of the things, there's several things you need to understand, I think, uh, to understand uh, this part of the book of Revelation. Uh, again, I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it to you again. Michael Gorman's wonderful book on the book of Revelation entitled Reading Revelation Responsibly. Um, that's important, just learning how to read Revelation responsibly. If you end up with this vision of Jesus holding a bazooka and a hand grenade, I challenge that vision of Jesus. But some people, when they spend time in this part of the book of Revelation, uh, that's where they end up at. Again, always, here. let me give you some basic, again, a little bit of a reminder, basic what we call hermeneutical principles. Basic principles that you use when you do your interpretive work of the Bible. Uh, let Scripture interpret Scripture. You know, there's a whole lot more in the Bible than just these passages from the book of Revelation. Make sure Scripture interprets Scripture. Don't, don't, don't create... Um, don't, don't allow your passages of Scripture to become just completely contradictory to each other. Uh, there has to be some unity in Scripture because there's unity in God. There has to be unity in Scripture. Uh, also, make sure that as you're interpreting Scripture always, to let the, the, the more clear passages of Scripture interpret the less clear passages of Scripture. I mean, if it's a passage of Scripture that you don't just understand, uh, just put it down and go back to the Gospels in 1 Corinthians 13 and some of the basics about our faith. Uh, Because don't let anything contradict the more clear passages of Scripture. Now let me narrow in a little bit more on the book of Revelation. Um, Obviously, the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Everybody says that. And then they, then they immediately go forth and pick and choose what pieces they want to be symbolic and what pieces they don't want to be symbolic. I try to keep it completely symbolic from beginning to end. I also think that when you get into this section from chapter 6 through chapter 19, I believe, and um, a lot of people throughout church history, great commentators on the Bible, um, a majority stream throughout Christian tradition um, starts to agrees with me. I guess I agree with them at this point. In, in that when you look at these sections, I think what you're going to see, if you look at it carefully, you're going to see several different repetitions 
of basically the same vision. Here in chapter 6 is a good way to look at because we'll do all chapter 6 and it, it occurs completely in chapter 6. In chapter 6, I believe you'll, you'll see the whole period of history from a Christian point of view presented. In chapter 6, you're going to see the whole age of the church presented and the return of Christ. If you don't see this in the book of Revelation, you'll end up with a problem, and one of those problems being there are about five returns of Christ in the book of Revelation. Either you're going to end up with a really complicated system that we don't see anywhere else in Bible, we don't see anywhere else in Christian tradition, or you'll say maybe what's happening here is the visions being offered repetitively. That would make more sense as we look at the repetitive offerings of the visions. Again, in chapter 6, we're going to go throughout the whole age of Christianity and the final consummation of the kingdom. I do think when you look at the visions, they are repetitively offering uh, the picture of Christian history culminating in the end. I, I think they're also offering them with increasing intensity to make sure you sort of get the message. And again, after we move beyond the seals um, to the trumpets to whatever, you, you'll see, I'll point out how, how I think they're being presented, uh, the judgments being presented with increasing intensity. Because the reason it's being presented is not to satisfy your curiosity not to give you a map of the future, not to make sure you know stuff other people don't know, but to call you to repentance. That's why it's being presented. And that's why I think it's it's presented with increasing intensity. The judgments get increasingly more dramatic throughout the book. Um, That's probably enough. I'll illustrate this, obviously, as we go through the text. And again, chapter 6 is a good vision of what I'm talking about, because you'll see the the history of the Christian community and the end being painted. The, The church historically has been very simple about this. We've got this age, and we've got the age to come. We've got this age, we've got the age to come, and the age to come will be brought about by several simultaneous things happening. Jesus will return, well, there'll be judgment on planet Earth, there'll be judgment of evil, Jesus will return, the people of Jesus will be gathered to Jesus, Um, the kingdom will come. And all that's sort of simultaneous. That's why when you know something like the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, we believe he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, quick and the dead. Uh, we've actually seen it that simple in Christian history. We, that, therefore, we put judgment. We put the return of Christ. We put the coming of the kingdom. We put the resurrection of the dead. We put the, the rapture, the gathering of God's people to Jesus. That's just part of the big event at the end of history. We don't separate that stuff out. 
we started separating, some people started separating that stuff out and making a timeline over the course of seven years. They started that in 1830, basically, literally, 1830. We know how it started happening. We know where it came from. We know who started producing that, that idea. Um, 1830 in Christian history was like day before yesterday. So uh, a lot of us don't put a lot of credence in anything that only goes back to 1830. And therefore, you know, if you're seeing, and well, I guess I do want to offend you at this point. If you're seeing, you know, a, a, a sort of secret rapture and then the great tribulation with the church being gone and everyone else suffering, and then the return of Christ. You're seeing something. You've got a seven-year period uh, separating a halfway return of Christ from the real return of Christ. You've got that seven-year period there. If you're seeing that, just be aware. John Wesley, Martin Luther, John Calvin, St. Augustine. I would even add St. Paul. Keep going. Never saw that. It started in 1830. Now, if you want to just accept something that started in 1830 and now is prevalent on the airways, basically in America, more power to you. I don't have the ego to do that. I'm not going to stand up against Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, uh, St. Augustine, St. Francis. The list goes on. I'm not going to stand up against the church pre-1830 and say, we just now know. We got this complicated system as to what's going to happen at the end of history. Um, it's been pretty simple in Christian history that we got this age and the age to come. This age will be a time of, of great progress for the church. And that's happened. We're all over the globe now. This age will be a time of great progress for the church. But that also means there'll be great attack on the church. You know, the more the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light advances, the more the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness gets kicked into overdrive. That makes perfect sense. So uh, this age is an age it is an age where we've seen great tribulation, we've seen great persecution, and it may, probably will, um, get exacerbated at the end of the age before the return of Christ. Because uh, I think, you know, as the enemy realizes his time is short, he probably really will kick it into overdrive as far as attacking the purposes of, of Christ and the world. But that's really about as complicated as we've made it historically. And that's about as complicated as we have found it to be in Scripture. This age may be increasing, certainly probably increasing, persecution throughout the age, and then the end. And a lot of wonderful things happening at the end. So... What I'm saying that I don't see in Scripture, like nobody before 1830, is I don't necessarily only see this picture that's being painted, something that's going to happen beginning in 2027 and after. In the New Testament, it is clear the phrase, the last days, is a common phrase in the New Testament, the last days. In the New Testament, it's very clear. The last days began when Jesus came. We have been in the last days since Calvary. 
You can't be clear in the New Testament. Now, you know, when we hear the phrase last days, we know that it's got to be our last days because everything's about us, right? Everything that God's ever done is all about 21st century America. So if I hear the phrase last days, it's got to be about my last days. Every time thus far the church has claimed, or not the church, but some Christian peoples have claimed that we are in the last, last days, they've always been wrong. That's been claimed throughout our history. There have been periods where it's been claimed with great drama, like around the year 1000, like around the year um, uh, 1900. It happened again, year 2000. Um, uh, there were a lot of stuff written in 1988. I still remember Mr. Whitsnitz's book. I was a young pastor, and I still remember, none of you did this, there were a lot of people buying Edgar Whitsnitz's book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Has to Occur in 1988. Well, he was wrong. And his reprint of Oops is going to occur in 1989, nobody bought that one. But you all bought copies of why the rapture is going to, 88 reasons why the rapture is going to occur in 1988. Do you know why 1988? And this was common in 1988. That was the 40th um, anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel. And everybody said it had to happen within a generation of the founding of the state of Israel. I think that came from a misreading of something Jesus said. Well, I kept my copy to show. I don't know where it's at, but I've got it somewhere. My copy of 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Has to Occur in 1988. In case you should need to be reminded, he was wrong. Um, this has happened throughout Christian history. The phrase last days does not refer just to our last days. In the New Testament, you can do what you want to with it. In the New Testament, read the book of Acts. The last days began with Jesus. Jesus really consummated history at the cross. Jesus defeated the enemy at the cross. Jesus assured the coming of the kingdom at the cross. We Christians make a lot out of the cross. I assume you realize that. The center of history, the most important event in history, is not really the return of Christ, it's Calvary. We make a lot out of what, what Jesus accomplished. So what you need to think about human history being since Calvary, and this is Oscar Coleman's illustration that all of us have borrowed and we use shamelessly, uh, but we can do this now since Second World War. Think about D-Day and V-E Day. At D-Day, in a sense... At D-Day, the war was assured over. When we won D-Day and the invasion, of the end was assured. Now, that was in June of 44. It took us to April 45 to get to Berlin. So we had, from, from, from D-Day to VE Day, we had the wrapping up operation. But it was assured at D-Day. In Christian theology, Calvary was D-Day. Calvary is what defeated the enemy. We make a lot out of the cross. Calvary defeated the enemy. That's the most important event in human history. Uh, we're in the period between D-Day and V-E Day. Uh, what the kingdom is advancing, we're doing, we're doing the mopping up work. That's what the church does. Um, there's going to come the end at some point when Jesus will finish what he assured at Calvary and the kingdom will come. 
That's what we mean by the last days. This whole period from Calvary to the end. This whole period from uh, D-Day to V-E-Day. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been common since 1830. Well, really, not since 1830. It took a while for it to catch on. But it's been common in the last hundred years for there to be a lot of Christians running around in America not worldwide, in America, saying we are in the last days. This is the last of the last days. Uh, and it may be. Jesus said, and this is really important, you know, when they asked Jesus that question, he said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So it really offends me when Mr. Whistnut seems to know something that Jesus said he didn't know. When Mr. Whiston writes a book saying 88 reasons why the rapture has to occur in 1988, to me that is beyond arrogant to blasphemous. So we Christians, and even even that saying we are in the last days, if you're not using that term biblically but you're using it sort of the way some contemporary Americans use it, that's almost beyond arrogant to blasphemous. Uh, Jesus said, um, I don't even know when the end will occur. You just need to be doing what you need to be doing. And all the text in the Bible, this coming Sunday's text is an apocalyptic text about the end. But the point of it is clear when Jesus presented Mark 13. I tell you this stuff so that you can repent and live well. So that you can repent and be faithful in the meantime. You know, he's never told us this stuff to do what some Christian groups have done. You know, to sell everything you have and go wait on top of a mountain somewhere because you know it's going to happen next Thursday. And that's happening in Christian history. That is so opposed to anything in the New Testament, so opposed to anything Jesus taught. So that's just a little background um, about contemporary uh, ways of viewing the end. Uh, A lot of us throughout history have seen these sections of the judgment to be a picture of of some of the stuff we deal with throughout Christian history is being presented in a symbolic way. There are symbols in the book of Revelation. I'm assuming you know that by this point. It's being dealt with in a symbolic way. Um, And again, because we might not be suffering great persecution here in the West, think about the Christians who have lived in Nigeria recently. Think about the Christians who have lived in Sudan recently. More Christians have died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century and the 21st century will be the same way than any other century of Christian history. So when you look at this stuff and you say, well, we're not experiencing any of this, well, again, it's not all about us. We've got sisters and brothers around the world that are suffering great persecution, that know that they'll lose their life for their faith. So... With that being said, uh, the reading that I think I'm trying to offer you is a reading that comes more historically rooted in Christian tradition. So here's, remember, it's chapter 5, who can open the seals? Well, we learn in chapter 5 who and who alone can open the seals. It's Jesus. Chapter 6, the seals get open. Now watch, verse 1, now watch when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. You can actually translate that, go. Either way. Verse 2. And I looked, by the way, here comes the four horses of the apocalypse. This has fascinated people for um, uh, almost two millennia. Here's the four horses of the apocalypse. They're let loose and they start riding. Verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider with a bow 
arrows not mentioned, by the way, but a bow is mentioned. And a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the first horse of the apocalypse is a white horse. He's white. Now, this shows you how fun the book of Revelation is. Historically, and I'll tell you what the consensus is, the prevailing consensus. Historically, when people look at this white horse that rides out at the beginning, some people say it's Christ. It's because Christ is going to be riding a white horse in chapter 19, much later, and it's really clear it's Jesus in chapter 19. So some people say, well, this is Jesus here. So it's the gospel going forth, and it's the going forth of the gospel that elicits the other three horses. And that's true, by the way. We know that from the rest of the Bible. You know, again, the work of God wakes the enemy up. So that's true. We know that. Um, so some people see this white horse that says Jesus. To show how fun it is, some people say, no, it's the Antichrist. It's the false Christ going forth at the end of the age, usually meaning the end of our age. Uh, they, it's the Antichrist. I think the greater consensus among serious scholars is it is exactly who the text says it is. It's a horse is going out to conquer. So it is, um, it is um, whoever goes out and conquers. It's whoever goes out and conquers. Think this is the first century Roman Empire. The Romans have done this. They go out, they conquer, they take over the world. They have to fight to conquer. They have to fight to keep possession of the world. Well, guess what that causes? Guess what it's been causing for the whole of human history? It causes... Um, horses two and three and four to ride forth. So it just may be conquering. You know, most most serious historians will look at this and say the, the most feared enemies of the Romans were the Parthians in the Far East. The Parthians were some of the only people in the ancient world that were smart enough or adept enough at riding horses and shooting arrows. And the Romans were terrified of them. So this may be just an image that would frighten the Romans, but it's, it's, just, it's just this nature of humanity to want to cause war and conquer, and we've seen these conquering peoples throughout our history. So as a result of the conquering people going forth, verse, um, look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal, the second living creature says, Come, and out comes another horse bright red. You should start thinking, you know, red looks a little bit like blood at this point. Um, right, red, his rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Yeah, it sure does. And so people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So he's red. He's slaying people. Uh, he's taking peace from the earth. He's coming after the horse that goes out conquering comes. So it's warfare. That's pretty obvious. It's warfare. Uh, we've dealt with this for a long time in human history. Uh, Christian history. Verse 5, he opened the third seal, and the third living creature says, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand, scales that you weigh things with. And I heard what seems to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm oil or wine. In the ancient world, the denarius was you could usually think of it this way a denarius was about what a common day laborer would make in a day 
So here's these scales that you weigh things on that this horse has. And you see that it says a quart of wheat for a denarius. In other words, you work all day long, and all you can buy is a quart of wheat. Um, which is not, you, not much. You might get you one loaf of bread out of that. And three quarts of barley, which is a cheaper kind of grain. So what you're looking at here is either famine or economic hardship, um, scarcity of food. And again, we know, you go, you, you go conquer, create war, there's going to be death and, and bloodshed. Out of that's going, going to be famine or economic hardship, uh, lack of food, lack of provisions. It's really interesting to all of us for the last couple of thousand years. It says, though, because that part's pretty clear, that says, do not harm oil and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, there's been a couple ways historically we've looked at that. One says, oh, that's an example of God's mercy. Even in the midst of all this stuff that God is allowing, because you, you read that language here, um, you know, these people, these these things bringing about judgment, they were allowed, they were permitted, they were given the right to do that. That's the language Revelation always brings. So God's sort of denying this, I mean, allowing this. So it says don't harm the oil and the wine. Well, that may mean there's some you know, allusion to God's mercy still being prevalent in the midst of the scarcity. Or, this is how fun Revelation gets, or it could mean, when you think of oil and wine, that was something more that the rich folks ate. I mean, if you can only just make bread and eat bread, you probably don't have money to go get the oil and the wine. So maybe what's happening is there's scarcity, there's famine, there's economic hardship, but the the wealthy aren't hurting as bad. They're still getting their oil and wine. These other people can't get enough wheat to make but one loaf of bread from their daily wage, but maybe the wealthy are surviving. That fits history, too, as we know it. Then verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. The Greek there actually says chorus, chorus, horse, from which you get, um, what word do we get from English? Think of a word that means green. I don't think it's probably my mind is chloroseptic. Sometimes that's green. Um, but chorus means kind of a pale greenish color. Uh, so as soon as you say that, you're going to kind of know what this horse symbolizes. It, it's, it's translated here a pale horse. But in case you missed the, what a chorus horse looks like, it says, and its rider's name was Death. So this horse is the color of death. Yeah, you go conquering, bringing about war. There's bloodshed. Uh, you know, the sword sh- sword shows up. Um there's famine, there's, there's lack of uh, food. Uh, yeah, what follows all that? Death. Death is what follows that. Um, death and Hades. Hades is the Old Testament word, or is the New Testament Greek word for the Old Testament concept, Sheol. Hades is the place of the dead. It's where the dead people go. Hades is not a polite term for hell. Some Americans think that. Hell and Hades are different in biblical literature. Hades and Sheol are just the place of the dead. Hell is the final torment of the wicked. We'll have chances to talk about hell here. But this is just saying when this horse rides, there's there's going to be death and the grave. Actually, sometimes the King James in the Hebrew Bible translates Sheol as the grave. So Sheol or Hades is just death, um, the grave. 
um, is, 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 is where, the, where you go when you're, when you're dead, before Christ particularly. Anyway, so death comes. And that makes pretty good sense. And notice it says, death and Hades fought him, and they were given authority. There's that word given. That's where you see that God has to sign off on whatever happens. He doesn't cause everything, but he has to allow everything. He has ultimate superintendency. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill kill with the sword and famine with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Um, Now, here's a fourth. The next series of judgments you're going to see is going to be a third. And the next series of judgments you see will be greater than that. As I said, these visions tend to be given with increasing intensity. Here's only a fourth. Now, please, I shouldn't have to work hard to, to remind you the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Whether it's something red, white, black, chorus. Where there's a horse. By the way, in the ancient world, horses were used for military, not just for transportation. Used a donkey for transportation. Think about Jesus riding into the holy city on Palm Sunday. Horses were military. Um, all of this stuff, we, we, you get what it means. So fourth does not mean literally fourth. It means a predetermined set number of people. Um, fourth is not a third. It's not. It's not two thirds. It's not complete. But it's a substantial number. Fourth, the numbers in the book of Revelation. You know, you should see them with symbolic significance, just like you see everything else in the book of Revelation. That's why I said some people they'll acknowledge that the book of Revelation is full of symbols, but the next thing they do, they start picking and choosing which is symbolic and which is not. And they'll go to the mat over being one-fourth of the population has to die. You know, um, just you're you're in safer ground. Just be consistent and just see the symbolism here. Try to see the spirituality behind the symbolism. So, yeah, this age, every age, and perhaps the end of the age, even more so, will be marked by people who want to conquer. And that will bring about death, Bloodshed, death, famine, scarcity of resources, um, uh, and then just final death, you die. That's been the way human history has pretty much been written. Uh, there's never, you know, it's, it's rare to, you almost, I've been told you can't, I've not done the math, but you can't find a period in human history when there's not a war going on somewhere. I mean, this is the way we write human history. Now, will it intensify at the end? It makes kind of logical, theological sense to me that it will intensify at the end. But I think when John's writing this, he was not just writing for us in the year 2038. He was helping the people that read this understand the world they were living in. And they understood it. They understood the white horse. They saw the white horse every time they looked out the front door with Rome all around them, Rome ruling. You know, there's a famous quotation about how Romans uh, um, conquered. Uh, The famous quotation from an ancient author is, Rome created a desert and called it peace. Yeah, they brought peace by just destroying everything they needed to destroy, kill everybody they needed to kill. Uh, And they weren't the last uh, warlike people who've done that. 
Um, again, if you say, well, this is just so foreign to us, we don't know about scarcity, we don't know about death, we don't know about being oppressed, we don't know about being um, occupied by a conquering army, well, that's great, we don't here. But throughout most of Christian history, a lot of Christians knew this life well. Again, think Nigeria, think Sudan, uh, think uh, Rwanda. Uh, I mean, this has been human history. So, you know, it's only been in recent years that people have looked at this and said, oh, this can't be human history. This is just the last seven years starting in the year 2042 and beyond. And again, you may want it to be that, uh, but just be aware that you're, in doing that, you're, you're not standing in a very large stream of Christian tradition. Anyway, um, look at... Keep, keep going. That, those are the horses. Those are the four horses of the apocalypse that seem to so fascinate human Christian imagination. Um, we know that because all the artwork that's been produced with the four horses of the apocalypse. Some people are waiting for them to start writing. What I'm trying to say to you, there's a whole lot of us in Christian history that say they have been writing for 2,000 years. John experienced these four horses of the apocalypse. Um, this will make more sense when I get to the end of the chapter. Keep going. When he opened the fifth seal, this is a different kind of vision. When he opened the fifth seal, he says, I saw under the altar, the altar in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So when, he, when this seal is open, he, he's, he's seeing a vision in heaven again, like he saw in chapters 4 and 5. He sees the altar in heaven, and it's not going to be the last time you see this, by the way, in the book of Revelation. He sees the souls of those who have been killed for, for their faith in Christ, been killed for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They've died. And they're, they're under the altar. The image here comes from the Hebrew Bible, where you had blood sacrifices at the altar in Jerusalem. And the blood would be poured out at the base of the altar. Here you see the martyr's souls being kind of where the blood would be poured out. You're seeing martyr's souls there. And they're going to shout out something in a minute. But you see the souls of martyrs there under the altar in heaven. Can you imagine if, if you're in the midst of a people that's being martyred for their faith, which has been Christian history, uh, except in High Point. It's been Christian history. If, you, if you're part of a people who's being martyred for the faith, can you see how comforting this is? The martyrs are, are right there under the altar. They're not even two yards from the altar. They're under the altar. It's like there's a special place in heaven for the martyrs. You know, there's that great old prayer in the life of the church that says, when you die, when we die, the angels and the martyrs will welcome you. Uh, they have kind of a special task in heaven. So here are the martyrs. This tells me they have a special place in heaven. This tells me they're taken care of for eternity. Now, they lost their faith. I mean, they lost their life because of their faith. But they have a special place in heaven. Um, and I, that also tells me that somehow their, the sacrifice of their life wasn't just meaningless. In God's economy, it was important. It was significant. So here you see the martyrs under the altar. And look at verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice. Oh, this is what they're crying out. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? 
before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Remember I told you a while back, that's almost a technical term in the book of Revelation. You've got the people of Jesus and you've got the earth dwellers. You have to decide which group you're in. Uh, here the martyrs are referencing the earth dwellers. Uh, you know, and saying, judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They Then they were each given a white robe. Victory, completion, perfection, celebration. They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. That's, I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's kind of, when I hear that, what I th- have this image of is God saying to them to chill out a little bit because it's not time yet for Christian is- history to end. So these martyrs are saying, how, how long, oh God? And they're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Yeah, the number's not complete yet. There's still people being martyred. I'm sure during our lunch here today, there have been people around the world who have lost their life for Christ. People are still being martyred. So somehow God's telling them, we're not finished yet. Uh, So just rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to to be killed as they themselves had been. Yeah, the age of martyrdom is not over. We know that. I hope that you subscribe to some websites. Uh, The Voice of the Martyrs. There's a good one. Subscribe to some websites that will keep you informed about the persecution of Christians. I've got an icon in my office. Icon's religious art. It's a, it's, not, it's a painting of 21 martyrs, recent martyrs. They are, they are um, dressed in prison garb. It makes sense when I tell you the story in a minute. They are dressed in prison garb. But they're, they're, they are wearing, in, the, in this painting, red sashes to symbolize the blood of Christ. And it shows the 21 of them going to heaven. What is an icon of, and you may have missed this, hope you didn't, uh, 21 Christians were taken out on the seashore of the Mediterranean in Libya and were beheaded by Islamic extremists because of their faith in Christ. That was just one incident uh, in probably five years ago, maybe. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure people have lost their lives for Christ while we've been here at lunch today. So, yeah, the age is continuing. So, you know, their souls are in heaven. Their souls are at the altar. And they're not asking for vengeance for their own sake. Because as soon as you hear this, you should remember Jesus and Stephen, who both when Jesus and Stephen were killed by their enemies, they said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But notice they're not asking for vengeance. These people are in heaven. They're okay. Uh, They're asking for vindication. They're asking for God to finally make it stop. They're asking for God to be vindicated. And that's what the coming of the kingdom is. When the kingdom comes, God will be vindicated. Uh, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I'm quoting Philippians 2. That's part of the coming of the kingdom. We Hopefully we're yearning for that day. We don't want this for vengeance for our own sake, but we want the day to come when God will be vindicated. Now look at verse 12 and following. I can do this quickly because I don't think I necessarily see, you know, 2047 uh, model 
helicopters or anything here. I think what most of us have seen here historically is one of the multiple times in the book of Revelation. Here's a picture of the end. Here's a picture of the end. Um, every there's, there's like five pictures of the end scattered throughout the book of Revelation. You know this because of a hymn you sing that quotes this section. Uh, it's a picture of the end, the end. All of these sections of the pictures of the end tend to point out different pieces of the end. This just kind of shows, well, you'll see what it shows. He opens the sixth seal. And John says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. When shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll. Think about what hymn you sing that says that. The skies vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island will be removed from its place. This is part of the end. And we don't see the end. We Christians have never believed in the end of the world. We believe the regeneration, the rejuvenation of the world. That gets clear as you go throughout the book of Revelation. It's very clear from Romans chapter 8 and other places. Uh, but this is a picture of the end. Um, what hymn is that you sing? This is a very popular hymn written by Horatio Spafford. It, the last verse references the second coming of Christ. And in that last verse that references the second coming of Christ, it says, The sky shall be rolled up like a scroll. You've sung it a thousand times. So when you sing it, you're, referring, you, you're acknowledging this text is about the end. Do you know what last verse I'm referring to, what hymn I'm referring to? It is well with my soul. Go look at the last verse of it is well with my soul. There's a reference about the sky uh, being rolled up uh, like a scroll. Because that, the, the, Horatio Spafford knew that this is referencing that, the second coming of Christ. But let me show you something else that, that a lot of commentators miss. Now, again, I don't like math. There's days I quote C.S. Lewis when I say math is of the devil. But sometimes you have to do some math. So don't be afraid of it. Look at verse 12 and count with me. And I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. Full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. When shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Seven. It's perfect destruction. It's the, it's the complete end. It's, it's the final end. It's the consummation. Uh, again, Horatio Spafford in the hymn, It is well with my soul is right. This is a picture of the end. You say, well, we're just at verse six. Well, remember what I said. There's repetitive visions in the book of Revelation. So this is a picture of the end. But... Though you miss it, he continues. Look at verse 15. We've, we talked about all this nat natural phenomenon that would be part of the end. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the hills, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide from us, hide us from the face of him, face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Lambs can have wrath, according to the book, for the great day of their wrath has come. Great day has come. Um, 
one seat on the throne is wrapping things up and the the chapter ends with who can stand well let me make sure you notice what's being put down here go back to verse you've seen complete destruction of earth or rejuvenation of earth or redoing of earth as the old order fades away so the new order can come you saw that Um, but then you have these peoples mentioned do the math the kings of the earth and the great ones. And, you know, great ones. Isn't that kind of weird? Well, he's doing something here on purpose. The kings, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, the slaves, and the free. How many? Seven. Groups? Seven groups. You know, this is going to be total, complete. All humanity will experience this. Now, what's rather interesting to me, and this may be indicative of our age a little bit, and I'll close with this. When the end comes and judgment's complete and the kingdom is completely consummating, these people, rather than repenting, which is why all of that's the whole reason we're still here. God is patient. God is giving, giving human beings a chance to repent before the end comes. That's why we pray the Lord Jesus come, but he hasn't come yet because he's given people a chance to repent. Um, but they don't repent. Instead, and this does look rather 21st century, Western, they sort of pray to the nature. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him and see it on the... Yeah, they're talking to the mountains and the rocks. It reminds me of what happened in a seminary recently that really um, agitated a lot of us. I, I know what they were doing, but it agitated a lot of us. It wasn't any seminary that I'm associated with, so don't try to figure it out. Um, but it happened in a seminary, and it was up north in a big city. Um, but what they did in a chapel service was they brought a bunch of plants in, and they all had a service of confession, confessing to the plants. Now, I know we've done some bad things to creation. I get that. We've done some bad things to creation. If you start telling me direct worship to a poinsettia, I'm going to really get agitated. (laughs) You know, we, we love creation. We don't deify creation. We don't pray to creation. We pray to the creator. And creation has to... We have to keep it in its place compared to the Creator. So it's really interesting to me what the people are doing here at the end. They're still not repenting, which I think that's what John wants you to see. They're still not repenting. They'd rather talk to the mountains and the rocks than repent. Um, And so the question is, who can stand? Well, chapter 7 is going to answer the question, who can stand? Go in peace. Yes, 1 o'clock. Go in peace.